0: This is The Flatlining Podcast. I think first and foremost, it's, it's capital for growth. Uh, you know, to function these days, uh, practices need technology, they need to hire new doctors, they need to open new offices. So private equity brings capital. They also bring know-how. Uh, they're business managers who've been successful and doctors are great clinicians and some are great business people, but having that professional uh, business partner is is very useful 30 states have laws against what's known as the corporate practice of medicine that would you know stop these for-profit companies from
1: running medical care so if you're a patient in the hospital like what are you supposed to do, right? What should you ask your
0: provider? What should you do if you're worried about the level of medical care that you're getting?
1: Hallie, don't be afraid to ask your doctor questions like who do you work for? Are you owned by a private equity firm? Are you uh, owned by a physician group? There's nothing wrong with asking for transparency in knowing who is in charge. Now, if you are concerned about the quality of your care or maybe the care of a family member or a loved one, absolutely report that to your hospital, your hospital board, as well as your local lawmakers. And Hallie, there may be some changes is coming. In California, a lawmaker has introduced a bill there that would, in part, require medical facilities to get consent from their medical staff when they're making policies.
0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from flatlining.net, and with me is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you doing? I am good, thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, kind of an interesting new phenomenon in the healthcare equation in the United States, and that is private equity money working its way into healthcare. We'll talk a little bit about how it's worked its way into insurance and also about a new problem where it's been working its way into private practice. That's all coming up. Plus, we're going to talk a little bit about some new views on COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. And if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about some hospital unionizations and strikes. But first, let's do the news. New CDC modeling suggests COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths will continue to rise in the U.S. through at least mid-June, as the highly transmissible, highly transmissible Omicron variant spreads through the country. This comes as hospitalizations are up 20% nationwide over the last 14 days, with 45 states and Washington, D.C. reporting an increase. The CDC is also warning about rebounds after taking the COVID-19 antiviral pill known under the brand name Paxlovin. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky was on CBS News.
1: If you take Paxlovid, you might get symptoms again. We haven't yet seen anybody who has returned with symptoms needing to go to the hospital, so generally a milder course.
0: The CDC still says the benefits of taking Paxlovid outweigh the risks. In hospital news, Universal Health Services is now the sole owner of George Washington University Hospital. The university announced it was selling its 20% minority stake in the hospital last week. The King of Prussia-based, Pennsylvania-based hospital system currently owns 28 acute care hospitals, 40 outpatient facilities and ambulatory care centers, and 355 behavioral health services across 39 states, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the U.K. They also own a health plan and independence physician management. Though it is a cannabis component, a very high dose of CDB does not appear to affect driving, that according to a small Australian study. Researchers of the University of Sydney found that even 1,500 milligrams, the highest daily medicinal dose of cannabis oil tested, did not seem to affect participants' thinking or driving skills when tested in a driving simulator. CBD does not appear to intoxicate people, researchers said, unlike THC, which is another cannabis component that can be found that induces sedation, a high, and impairment. New survey data is out about Americans' views on the COVID-19 vaccine. The Kaiser Family Foundation's COVID-19 Vaccine Monitor, nearly 3 in 10 women who are pregnant or are planning to become pregnant believe at least one item of misinformation about COVID-19 vaccines. About 6 in 10 adults believe or are unsure about at least one piece of misinformation surrounding pregnancy and the vaccines. But when asked about the general public, 7 in 10 adults are confident in the safety of COVID-19 vaccines. For more headlines and analysis delivered to your email address weekly, sign up for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. Ron, I want to start by uh, getting your reaction to people's opinions, the public's opinions about COVID-19 vaccines, especially now that we're two years into uh, COVID and the vaccines have been around for at least a year.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's really amazing to me that we are two years into the most widely distributed vaccine we have ever seen. We've got more data about the COVID-19 vaccine than any other vaccine we've ever had. And still there's a fair percentage of people who um, believe that the vaccine is either harmful or dangerous or some form of misinformation. I mean, you know, the, you look at that Kaiser study, 30% of adults still have safety concerns about a vaccine that is the most widely safest vaccine we've ever seen. That mm-hmm. that amazes me that we're still at that level of concern.
0: Why do you think uh, people continue to believe some of these things about the vaccine? I mean, it's easy for you and me to say that because we work with physicians every day, and obviously people are not talking to their doctor every day, but I don't know if I've ever seen before this amount of hesitation over any particular thing, this kind of almost conspiratorial thinking about anything until we had COVID and the COVID vaccines. Why do you why do you think that persists?
1: Well, I, I think uh, several factors are in play, and it's almost a perfect storm. Um, first of all, we have this now heightened, you know, um, social media ability for people to spread misinformation. Um, it's very easy to spread information, and, and you have this wide audience, okay? Secondly, this vaccine is probably the first medical treatment that got politicized, and it got politicized very early. Um, and, you know, the third thing is we are in probably the most divisive political time we've ever been in. I, you know, I, I've I talked to other people about the fact that, in, and I'm old enough to remember this, that, you know, Ronald Reagan, when he was in office, had his opposite side, which was Tip O'Neill, which was Speaker of the House. The two of them never agreed on anything politically, Mm -hmm. but they didn't hate each other. I mean, they used to, uh, you know, after five o'clock, they used to go over to the, Tip O'Neill would go over to the White House and have a bourbon with with, with Ronald Reagan. You know, Bill Clinton had Newt Gingrich. Mm -hmm. Again, politically, as diametrically opposed as you could have, but they didn't hate each other and they worked together. You know, we saw, in this even in the Supreme Court, when you saw, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Scalia Okay, diametrically opposed on how they viewed the Constitution. They vacationed together. They were friends. You know, Um, we don't have that now. We have this incredibly divisive, you know, political environment at the same time that we've got an ability to spread misinformation like we've never had and the first sort of medical treatment to truly get politicized. And I think that's the perfect storm of why people still believe the misinformation that they believe.
0: Well, I, I guess the, the main advice we can provide, and it's what I've told people all along, is if you have a question, go talk to your doctor. I mean, who else are you supposed to trust more than your own primary care physician for matters of, of health and safety, especially when it comes to you? Um, so talk to your yeah. doctor if you have questions. It's not, Absolutely. A, a, not a bad piece of advice. They're not in on the scam, I promise.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, and I always, I a lot of times, would ask my doctor for things, you know, If this were you or your family member, your child, would you do this? You know, try Mm -hmm. to make it personal for them. Well, you ask your doctor, are you vaccinated? Are you, is your family vaccinated? Would your, would you let your, you know, your pregnant daughter get vaccinated? Would you let your pregnant wife get vaccinated? Are you vaccinating your children? Um, there's a great, you know, put your money where your mouth is statement and, and, and ask them why or why not?
0: Well, let's uh, take a moment to move on to what the main topic we wanted today's show to be, and that's we're going to be talking about uh, private equity money in uh, American healthcare. And this appears to me to at least be a relatively new phenomena, and we'll get into that in a second. And at the beginning of the program, we played uh, two clips uh, of of different interviews. One uh, was from someone who is familiar and works with the private equity uh, folks trying to get into healthcare, and he explained it more as a business decision as a as a way for hospitals, as a way for practices, as a way for insurance companies to have capital to move forward and progress and get newer technology and, and better care for their patients. The other side of that was you seem to have a, a very fear and opposition driven idea uh, coming from an, an NBC News contributor who said that if you have questions, well, you got to ask your doctor, who do you work for? So we're going to dive a little bit into that today. And Ron, I want to start by asking first, for people that don't know, what are private equity groups and why are they getting involved in healthcare?
1: Yeah, so private equity groups or also venture capitalists get involved as well. These are basically entities that take individuals' money and invest it for a return. You know, it's groupings of, of investors, if you will. And so it's another avenue. It's, instead of buying stock in a company or whatever, you can belong to one of these groups. They pool the equity together or the money together, and they invest in things, whether that's a startup company or buying a company or buying a medical practice. And they do it to try to get a return on that investment. So, you know, to that first one, it said, well, this is all about getting capital or whatever. Well, not really. The people lending the money are doing it because they believe That there's a healthy return on that investment and they want that return that's not bad or evil when you think about it pretty much everybody that invests in something when i buy a stock i hope the stock price goes up why Mm -hmm. so i get a return or i hope i get a dividend it just it's understanding their motivations are to make money and as they're getting into medical care it's because they believe there's a way to make
0: money there So let's talk about first something that I'm a little bit, well, I wouldn't say a little bit more familiar with, but I was more aware of that it existed, and that's private equity's involvement in insurance. And in particular, I seem to have seen this come out of uh, the Affordable Care Act with a lot more marketplace plans being run by uh, private equity groups. Talk a little bit about that development and uh, them getting involved in the insurance side of healthcare.
1: Yeah. So like anything with private equity, it's sort of like um you know how water finds its the lowest level or whatever Mm -hmm. these folks are looking for opportunities marketplaces where there's opportunity growth industries where they can invest in um, and typically in the area of insurance these were startup companies these new exchange plans Um, when the affordable care act got passed this created a whole new marketplace these exchange plans Um, and private equity saw that that was a real opportunity a growing opportunity and that it was one that could produce real returns. And so they started investing in these new insurance companies. Um, some of them have done well, others have done poorly. Um, Bright Health, for example, was a company that started up, um, got a little bit of thing ahead of itself, maybe didn't understand exactly what it was doing. Mm-hmm. And I think its stock is trading at like a buck and a half a share right now. Um, at its peak, I think it was trading close to $18 a share. So it, it fell on its face. Others have done well, but that's, that's that sort of entrance into insurance with this brand new market that they could go after.
0: Does private equity insurance provide uh, any benefits over a, a traditional commercial plan or over that you would get with your employer, either through United or Anthem or whoever it may be, or th- over a Medicare, uh, Medicare Advantage plan or traditional Medicare?
1: Um, the fact, whether it's a private equity backed insurance company or plan or not, is really irrelevant to what kind of benefits they offer. So for example, um, on the Affordable Care Act exchanges, those benefits are mandated. So you have to cover certain levels of care um, and they're looked at actuarially to make sure you're providing at least X amount of benefits. So whether they're private equity or not has nothing to do with whether they provide more benefits or not. Um, That's really a product design. That'd be almost like saying, you know, if an auto manufacturer was... Uh, privately held versus publicly traded. Does that mean their cars are safer? No, it's right. you got to look at their product to find out whether their cars are better, safer, faster, et cetera.
0: Talk about this relatively new development of private equity in um, in actual care. You know, a private equity firm owning you know a, a gastroenterology group or or a, uh, a physician group in an area.
1: Yeah, and this one is is relatively new. Private equity first got started in some of the medical practices where there was a high degree of, of, um, fee for service or cash payment, things that aren't typically covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, Dermatology has been hit pretty good with private equity. Um, allergy practices have had some private equity get in the plastic surgery. Um, some of the ophthalmology. Well, in each one of those, there's a high degree of sort of uncovered cash payments, ophthalmology would be things like uh, LASIK surgery, you know, dermatology would be some of the, you know, non-medically necessary things like cosmetic issues with the skin. Um, It started to move into areas that are highly um, focused on what are things covered by insurance, like GI and some of the other specialties. And the reason they're doing it is they're looking for business scenarios where they can bring a different approach and improve profit levels so for one thing on the gi side um, they can take a gi physician who used to do a procedure in his office and then they can turn that into an office service plus a facility fee that adds a lot of cost adds profit Mm -hmm. Um, they also will take some of the practices and say hey these physicians aren't getting very much money from the insurance company because they're fragmented but we could buy up four of the five groups in a city and now we've got market dominance and we start to approach, you know, monopoly theory um, because we have a bigger percentage of market and we can use that and some business practices to drive up their reimbursement, which hence gets them more profit. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's taking a business approach to a marketplace a big marketplace and trying to figure out ways to increase the profit load so that you can do that return on the PE investors.
0: And I used gastroenterology uh, kind of intentionally because of a recent news story at at Kaiser Health News, and we'll be sure to to include that in the show notes uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, But they talked about, in particular, San Antonio, Texas, which has lots of different GI offices, but more than two dozen of them now are controlled by one private equity back group. And that's uh, the Texas Digestive Disease Consultants, which are now uh, with a deal with Wand Capital based in, in Chicago. And one of the things that they cite in this article for the reason for private equity investment in GI specialty, especially, is because of the recent lowering of the recommended age for getting a colonoscopy by the CDC. Um, and the average age of people now going to the doctor for these sorts of things. So it really, is, it really is people looking for ways that they can get in that they may not have been able to get in before with some of these groups. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you take this perfect example. Yeah, you look at the San Antonio market as a wonderful um, sort of laboratory for it. What you saw was a lowering the age of the recommended for screening colonoscopies. That means an increase in demand. They saw a market where they could consolidate that market, by taking what used to be competitors, which helps drive the price down, consolidating them together into a larger group and driving the price up. So I've got an increase in demand. I can drive up the reimbursement level. I can convert it to a facility fee as well. There is a big increase in profit that will get that return to those people who don't have anything to do with GI, who have given me their money if I'm a private equity firm and it'll give a return to those people on their investment. So I'm taking other people's money. I'm looking for business opportunities. I see one that that increases has an increase in demand, a way to drive up prices and add additional ancillary revenues. Man, that's a wonderful one. And they went into it and they did it and they're doing it.
0: And colonoscopies make perfect sense, too, because now you've got a 20-year gap before Medicare has to foot the bill for when otherwise private insurance would be working on it.
1: Yeah, Starting right. at 45 and
0: exactly. now going up to 65.
1: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, a lot of these people have to get one every five years. So I've got a returning customer. You know, if I get them at 45, I might get them again at 50 and at 55 and at 60 before I ever have to deal with Medicare reimbursement.
0: It's interesting. This article also uh, talks a little bit about the, the No Surprises Act, and it says that it was common for patients to get slapped with an expensive bill after being treated by an emergency room doctor employed by a private equity-owned staffing service, a problem that policy experts say was not a glitch, but rather a business model for some of these private equity companies. Um, From what my knowledge of the No Surprises Act, that doesn't, I don't understand how that could necessarily be described as a business model for private equity companies.
1: Well, so um, part of that's absolutely true. in the world of the hospital based providers, the anesthesiology group, ERs, radiology, and anesthesiology, there were some um, private equity backed companies that started um, buying up those physicians, um, creating staffing entities that would staff these hospitals, and have these multi site, multi state companies. Some of those companies, um, either as a business, um, Decision would refuse to contract with the insurance companies and therefore could balance bill or surprise bill the patients Others of them just set a certain level of reimbursement and said hey if you're not going to pay me at least X I'm not going to contract with you and so um, It may not be fair to say it was a business plan just to not contract with anybody because you know Most of the time they they set a level and the insurance company said I'm not willing to pay that that's unreasonable You know reasonable is in the eye of the beholder Um, So, it is true that there was a lot of private equity in those specialties. Um, Some of them were balance billing patients because of these practices, business practices. Um, And, you know, lo and behold, we got the No Surprises Act to fix that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the only reason that was put out there, but it was one of the drivers.
0: It, It appears from, among some at least, that there seems to be some resistance to private equity groups because it, according to some. It seems to lower the quality of care that one might receive if they went to a physician or a facility that was backed by private equity. And one of the examples they give is a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research, which showed that uh, when private equity owned a nursing home, patients were more likely to die in their first months there and more likely to be prescribed antipsychotic drugs. Uh, this, to me, seems more a little seems a little bit more like a, a correlation without causation. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and whether or not, secondarily, if you think that there is any advantages or disadvantages for patients going to a uh private equity backed facility or or physician group.
1: Well, the first thing I would say is I, I think making inferences from a nursing home study to physician practices is is a, a huge leap. They're very mm-hmm. different environments. Um I'm aware of the study and and I don't know as I would say that the data from that study makes me 100% conclusive that there's causation there. But I do right. think it raises an interesting question. And part of that is because one could look at a, a profit-driven nursing home and saying, well, since almost all nursing home money is, is regulated as far as the revenue coming in, the way to make more profit is to cut cost. and One could argue that, well, a logical way to cut costs would be to reduce staffing and take problematic patients and put them on heavy sedatives. There's at least a question there, but that's a very different environment than physicians. So I haven't seen anything, any data on PE entry into physicians or hospitals for that matter, that tends to support this idea that would be a reduction in quality. Some would argue that the PE world might even increase quality because of their business drive for more revenue, you might get more services than you would otherwise get. The big concern, I think, on the physician side is, does it drive up cost unnecessarily?
0: Let's stay with that for just a second. When you say that it might increase quality because that they're profit-driven, they're more business-driven, could it be, is it, well, is it appropriate to say then that it could also be that they might lower quality in order to, and cut corners in, in order to increase profit?
1: It could, however, I will tell you that most of what I've seen on the PE entry into medical practices, their push is on improving revenue more than lowering cost. I've not seen, I personally haven't seen many examples of a PE firm coming in and saying, hey, let's fire all the nurses right. and replace them with lay people. Um, what I do see is how do we improve the revenue stream? And so here's, let me give you, since we're on GI, mm-hmm. let me give you a perfect example of how one could argue it maybe increases quality. Um, A a standalone independent GI physician might not have very good tools to remind the person that it's time for their five-year colonoscopy, but a PE firm might bring in the kind of systems and tools that would automatically say, hey, you know, when Ron Harrigan gets five years past his last colonoscopy, when it's recommended he gets another one, you know, we call him on that day and say, hey, Ron, it's been five years. How do we get you scheduled? We've got all your records, et cetera. And if they do that better than, let's say, the independent practice, that's an improvement in quality because, mm-hmm. in that, you know, me getting called back right away, they might find a, a cancer or a polyp earlier than they otherwise would. So um, I, I don't think there's any data that supports that PE absolutely improves quality, but they might with some of the tools and business systems they bring to practices. Mm-hmm.
0: So that that's one way where you could say that private equity might, in a sense, benefit patients when they're going to see a, a doctor, particularly a GI in that case. How might it benefit uh, physicians and physician groups? PE involvement in healthcare.
1: So um, there's several different ways that the physicians kind of can work with PE. One is they sell their practice, um, and then they you know work under an employment contract. Sometimes that employment contract you know, has some incentive bonuses into it. So, you know, one of the, re- when, when people talk to me about PE and physician firms, some say, well, why would physicians want to be involved with private equity? Why do they need to? Well, because they're getting squeezed right now. They're getting crushed pretty bad on, you know, having to work harder and harder to make the same money um, that sometimes they're looking for a way out. Some of them sell to hospitals, you know, some are talking about trying to form physician unions, some are selling to PE. They're looking for a home so they can maintain a, an appropriate income level in a market that is really squeezing them pretty good right now.
0: You, when we discussed this earlier this morning, you seemed interested in, in talking about how this can compare to the criticisms for the for-profit insurance companies. And of course, by them, we mean you know your, your usual suspects, Cigna, United, Anthem, uh, Centene, CVS, which owns Aetna. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about uh, how we can compare the two criticisms of private equity and comparing the criticisms that we have of, of for-profit insurance.
1: Yeah. And, and, and to me, this is the important part of the discussion, um, is healthcare is different than almost every other product and service. Okay. In most cases, a product or service You make more money, you do better when your customer gets what they want and what they need. Because, you know, if I'm operating an expensive restaurant, I want happy customers. I want them to have good food. I want them to have whatever food they want because that's what they're paying for. I want them to leave happy. They got what they wanted and what they needed. If I'm selling a product, I need that product to be better and better so more people want to buy it. Healthcare is bizarre in that, in the finance of healthcare is, first of all, the customer may not, what they want may not really be what they need. Secondly, what they need is almost always an expense to the financing of it, to the insurance company. Mm-hmm. So the profit motivations of an insurance company might be diametrically opposed to what you as a patient need. Cause really what they would want is for you to not need any services. And then when you need services to pay the, the least amount they can. Right. Um, and the physician side, now you're into this scenario where the doctor is trying to provide you what you need, but what if they have certain profit motivators to not undercare for you, I don't think they would do that per se, but to either overcare or provide services at a location that maybe not is the best. Let me give you a couple examples. There are a lot of things that doctors could order right now that they potentially don't because they know it doesn't either do any good for you or it doesn't change their clinical decision-making. If you came to a physician and said, hey, doc, I'm starting to have these really bad headaches, okay, that doctor, having seen this presentation many times, may go, look, Matthew, we're going to start you on this medication. We think it's migraines. So I'm going to have you start you know, mm-hmm. journaling what triggers these things. I'm going to start you on this medication, see if it works. OK, so he knows that's the right thing to do clinically. Now, he could also say, hey, um, I'm also going to order an MRI, you know, to make sure that it's not this weird brain tumor. Um, the MRI, he's already going to start you on the medications ahead of time. The MRI doesn't change his, his clinical decision making. And is he ordering that MRI because he's motivated by profit to do it? OK, so that's one concern people have. Mm-hmm. Are we going to start over caring for people um, because of the profit motivation to, to have this return. The other scenario is, um, he knows that you need an MRI. Okay. He's concerned. It's not just headaches. You've got loss of, uh, vision field in a certain area. You've got other, you got some weakness in your right arm. These are bad symptoms. Okay. But let's say his owner tells him, Hey, we are, we send all our MRIs to Acme MRI down the road. That's where we get our, you know, our profit from. And that doctor knows that that's not the best scanner in the market, and it's not going to be read by a neuroradiologist. Mm-hmm. So now you may be providing them with substandard of care because you're driven by what is otherwise a profit motivation to do so. That's the concern that we get into with um, you know, the PE entry into these markets. You know, Are they going to recommend things that you don't need, which will drive up cost? Or are they going to send you to places that aren't quite as good? because of profit motivation. And to me, that's a real concern.
0: Well, you know, we, we discussed this uh, I, I think you wrote an article about this earlier this year. I don't know if we discussed it on the podcast or not, with a decision from United Healthcare to rank uh, different, I believe it was radiology groups, to rank radiology groups internally, and essentially, they wanted to send patients to the less expensive radiology groups. Uh, because their ranking had nothing to do with uh, the quality of the of the care that you would receive. It had nothing to do with uh, how accurate the physicians there were at reading MRIs and X-rays. How does this yeah. differ from something like that? That particular kind of decision from a company like United Healthcare. Well,
1: it's a it's a very similar concern. Um, because the concern is that decisions are gonna get made and your care is gonna get provided based on factors other than what's best for you. You know, in the United Mm -hmm. Healthcare scenario, they were basically saying, look, you know, we're gonna rank everybody according to three criteria. And those criteria were so easy to pass. Right, yeah. You know, it'd be like saying, it'd be like me saying to you, you know, hey, you have this very difficult brain surgery that needs to happen. Now, I'm gonna take a look at three different neurosurgeons and and then if they're equal in quality, I'm going to pick the cheapest one. And you say, okay, what's the quality indicator? And you're looking for, you know, their, how many of these cases have they done? How What's their <laughs> post-op infection rate, the mortality rate? And I say their quality is, um, do they have MD behind their name? Um, have they ever been in an OR? And can they spell their own last name? You're like, wait a minute. They're all going to pass those three, so now you're just going to pick the cheapest. you know? And so that's what United was doing it's the same sort of scenario when you get pe money in where is somebody going to say hey we want you the own doctor now to start to send your patients here or we want you to use this drug versus this drug or we want you to do this that may not be what you think is best for your patient but we're your employer now we're going to tell you what to do um, so it's a very similar concern and it's that whole concern of what happens when profit motivation runs amok of patient care
0: at the beginning of the program I mentioned that we had discussed or that we played a clip from uh, NBC News and the contributors seem very concerned and and that you know you're gonna have to start asking when you go to the hospital you know who, who is your employer who does the doctor work for do you think that sh- concern should be taken seriously or do you think that's an overreaction
1: I, I personally I think it is a piece of a lot of information that everybody should understand about their doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't with, with how easy information is available and how many questions you could ask your doctor, even on a portal, even on a, you know, you don't even have to be at the visit. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why people don't know more about their doctors. I know where all of my doctors trained. I know how long they've been in practice. You know, I, I know are they independent or owned by somebody. It doesn't mean that if somebody is owned by a hospital, That they're necessarily bad. It doesn't necessarily mean if they're owned by private equity, they're necessarily bad. It's Mm -hmm. just a piece of information I want. You know, years ago, I had to go to a cardiologist. That cardiologist is owned by a large system like most cardiologists are. Mm -hmm. He's a phenomenal cardiologist. I have no concerns about him, but I know where he trained and I know who his employer is. It's just information I'd like to have.
0: But what you're saying is, if you're in an emergency setting and you're at the hospital, it, that oh. it may not be the the right question to say, "Are you owned by a private equity company, or are you owned by a, no. a nonprofit, or something like?" No,
1: that? No, no. This is yeah. This is more for elective stuff, and and again, it doesn't rule a doctor out. It just, you know, it, it's information that that it's nice to know. And if if they are owned by somebody and they they're recommending something, you know ask them, Hey, do you make any money on that? How do you, you know, Mm -hmm. um, is this really what I need? You know, one of the things that is incredibly valuable and powerful is the second opinion. Um, I've worked with a lot of doctors. The really good doctors have zero concern about somebody saying, if you don't mind, I'm going to get a second opinion because the really good doctors, a know they're right. And B, if they're wrong, they would love to know it. I mean, they really want what's best for you. And so, if you're at all concerned about somebody's motivation, say, you know, before I get that MRI, I'd, I'd like to get a second opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually the doctors who throw a fit about that, I would never see again because it makes me worried on why they're, you know, why they don't want me to ask somebody else.
0: Right, right. So, as we frame everything, well, not everything, but a lot of things we talk about here on the Flatlining podcast in the terms of the healthcare equation, how does private, so start with first of insurance. How does private equity, involvement in health insurance affect quality, access, and cost in the American healthcare care system?
1: Um, I would argue that private equity's involvement in the health insurance industry probably doesn't impact any of those things to a okay. great degree. And partly because that is already a very competitive, well-established marketplace. So these folks are coming in, they're already competing with the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans of the country, the United Cygnus Aetna's And if they're doing something not as good as those, they're not going to be successful. You know, the one nice thing about a, uh, you know, a capitalistic free market economy is people who build bad products or bad services go under. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the, you know, the, you know, the slowest antelope in the herd doesn't last very long. Um, So I don't think on on the insurance side, they really impact any of those things much at all.
0: So in, in that sense, is it one of those things where it doesn't really matter if it's there or not, or is it something that you think Congress ought to legislate on and say, nope, can't be involved, or yes, they should be involved?
1: No, I don't think Congress should legislate on whether PE money should be in the insurance market. There's there's a whole lot more issues about how we finance health care in the insurance market that need to be addressed well before that. And, and again, and I brought him up in his example, case in point, you had Bright Health come in to the marketplace. They obviously weren't doing everything extremely well because they're going under and the marketplace will deal with that. And other health plans who came in with PE money are doing very well Mm -hmm. and offering good services, good products, and good competition for the others.
0: All right. And then talking about private equity in, in actual healthcare, same sort of question. How does that affect quality cost and access?
1: Well, we don't have any data that shows that it impacts quality or access negatively. Um, Mm -hmm. We do have data that shows that it impacts cost and it drives up cost. Now, the question becomes, if not for private equity sort of bringing up revenues, how else would it happen? You know, we can't in this country, and I'll take physicians as an example. We can't continue to try to stifle physician reimbursement and income and expect them to still want to do the job. Um, you know, right now, for example, you um, everybody's all bent out of shape about inflation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Inflation being about eight and a half percent and in some segments, energy, et cetera, much higher than that. Do you know what the current inflation, now this is what physician prices because inflation is really what you can sell that product for. just like when you talk about oil inflation, that's what they sell gas for. Do you know what the current inflation rate is for physician services? I 1. would imagine.
0: 1. Yeah. I was 1. 7%, say I'd imagine
1: yeah. 1.7%. 1. Oh. 1. So, when physicians are having to pay more to, you know, for everything else, just like everybody else is, they're only allowed to increase their prices roughly 1.7%. That means they're making less money unless they work more and more hours. We can't continue to sort of squeeze that bubble and have them not look for another way to maintain income, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I think, you know, PE money with physicians is something we have to be very careful about because of what it does to cost and how it does it. But we also need to look at if if it, it, let me put it a different way. It's sort of like that old argument when you talk about the war on drugs, and then you go, "Well, do you stop the drug supply or do you stop the demand? Mm-hmm. If there was no demand, there would be no supply, right? You know. And in the case if physicians weren't hurting so bad, there would be no opportunity for PE money to attract to them. Um,
0: yeah. You know, which even, whichever one you want to fix, or even yeah. consulting firms like ours.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. I mean, it, there's it, there's a there's a need there because physicians are struggling, and that's something we I think we need to be very very careful on.
0: One um, one final question in this topic, and I, and I think we'll we'll spend the last couple of minutes talking about unions and, and strikes. Yeah, there seems to be when we talk about some of these doctors and groups thinking that that they need to do something to be able to keep surviving; otherwise, they're going to go under. They're going to close their practice down. And the two options seem to be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong if there's more than two options, but the two options seem to be selling to the hospital or selling to private equity. What would be the advantage of one over the other and, or is there a third option?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right. The first two for most physicians sell so the hospital private equity, the first two. You know, some groups are trying to to gain market leverage by without PE money by merging groups together and supergroups. That's probably the third option is to, you know, to do that. Um, You know, there are advantages and disadvantages of both um, or all three, no matter whether you sell to private equity or sell to a hospital, you go from being sort of a business owner like independent practices and knowing that you can make your own decisions to being an employee of somebody Mm -hmm. else. And, and that's, for some physicians, very difficult to, to do. Um, and part of it has to do with then they can, in essence, tell you how to provide patient care. Some don't. Um, some still let the doctors do whatever they want to. But at the end of the day, if your employer says jump, you either say how high or you quit. Um, right. And so that's a real, real concern for a lot of doctors and for what it's going to do to care delivery.
0: Well, if you want to read this article from the Kaiser Health News about uh, private equity getting involved in gastroenterology in particular, uh, we'll have that linked in the show notes for this episode of the Flatlining Podcast. We're going to turn to another uh, kind of interesting news story now, and I want to remind everyone that if you want more news delivered to your email address, just sign up for our emails at flatlining.net. It's a great way to stay in touch with us. Also, you get this podcast delivered to your inbox each week so that you never miss it. But this story is kind of interesting, talking about uh, residence and unionization. And I want to start by asking first for, for the lay people that don't fully know, what is a hospital residency and, and what role does that play in the training of a future MD or DO?
1: So um, medical residency is part of the you know, the overall training for physicians if you think about it sort of in a most simplistic, um, scenario, um, you know, you go to medical school, that's sort of your quote unquote book learning. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you go to your residency and that's your real hands on stuff. It's almost like an apprenticeship or internship or whatever. Um, and then after that you could go on to, you know, um, Specialization into certain areas and that kind of stuff, subspecialization. But you know, residency is where okay, you've had your medical school, you've done sort of the book learning, if you will, and now it's time to go treat patients. You know, obviously there are physicians who are managing these residents um, as they go through that process, but they're also providing residents provide a great deal of care, um, and so that's what residency is for physicians.
0: So in, in a sense, if you compare it to the, to the education world, it's similar to your student teaching semester you need to do before you can get your license. Yeah, perfect example. So the reason we bring this story up is that there's a story on Kaiser Health News as well. And we'll make sure we link it as well about uh, residents, residency groups becoming in some areas in some parts of the country unionizing in order to get a, a higher pay. Uh, for what they're doing, and some of the the associations, including the um, Association of American Medical Colleges, um, are not outright opposing this, but they're pointing out that um, the the primary role of a resident is exactly what you just described to be trained, uh, and thus that they're not you know pay should not be the main driving factor here. I'm curious what your initial reactions are in hearing about um, in this particular story at Harbor UCLA. Um, possibly planning on going on strike, the residents going on strike uh, in order to get higher pay
1: Yeah well so um, one of the things to understand about medical residency is it is still a bit trial by fire and it's it's a you know an absolute backbreaking schedule. So you know this isn't like a couple hours a day. They are medical residents I think now are in a scenario where, you know, they can be required to work a full twenty-four hours in a row shift, but they can't be required to work any more than twenty-four hour shift. Well, I don't know any student teaching scenario where they could make you work twenty-four hours in a no. row. And their maximum number of hours per week that they can be asked to work or told to work is 80 hours a week. Most residencies that I know of, or most doctors I talk to, say routinely they were working 70 hours a week or more. Okay the average resident gets paid for all this work that they're doing $64,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So if they're working an 80 hour week, $64,000 a year, that's $15 an hour. You know, mm-hmm. we're in this country talking about trying to pass a $15 an hour minimum wage. And we've got people who've been through medical school and they're doctors providing direct patient care for 15 bucks an hour. You know, if they're only working seven years a week, well, wow, that's a whole $17 an hour. Okay. And they still have to pay for, you know, the education part of it, et cetera. So, you know, I think there's a legitimate question here about, you know, with what we're paying residents and how hard we're working them, is that really sort of indentured servants or almost slave labor? Because mm-hmm. it's a pretty low per hour for the number of hours that crank them out.
0: And it's interesting because one of the reasons that they're arguing and in, 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 in rather for higher pay is because a lot of them, say that they have been working that full 80 hours, particularly particularly during the heights of the COVID pandemic, Mm -hmm. Um, and they're concerned about burnout and and not following through with completing their medical training. Uh, More than 1,300 unionized residents and other trainees at three Los Angeles County Public Hospitals, including Harbor, UCLA, uh, voted yesterday on whether or not to strike for a bump in their salaries and housing stipends. Uh, this is after a month-long negotiation deadlock with the county. I do not know the result of that vote. It wasn't published in this article. Um, if I find it, I'll, I'll tweet it out. So be sure to follow us on Twitter. With more than... Um, there, there's, there's this instance here in California, and I was just reading also, and this is slightly... It's not related to residents, but it's it's another recent news story. 2,000 workers at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, which is also in Los Angeles, Um were on strike for a while and they recently got a new contract with their hospital um, for higher pay how damaging to a hospital particularly two years into a pandemic is residents or other staff going on strike
1: oh it's crushing i mean uh you know in in emergency medicine they talk about the ABCs: airway breathing circulatory and those are the things that will kill you the fastest a, a clogged airway mm-hmm. will kill you faster breathing bleeding out so um Having your, if you're a big system, having your residents go on strike, that's airway. Having your nurses go on strike, oh, that's airway. I mean, mm-hmm. that'll kill you in a heartbeat because it will stop your ability to generate revenue. You know, you, you can't tell people in a hospital, well, there's not really a doctor here that's going to come see you or any nurse that's going to give you your meds, but we're still going to keep you in the bed and we're still going to bill for you. Um, and, you know, when you think about how, money, how much work residents do, if they leave in a big system, there aren't enough doctors to pick up all that slack. If the nurses leave, there's nobody else that's picking up that slack. So right. yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's crushing. You know, it is the, uh, the financial for a hospital, the financial equivalent of closing off the windpipe. Um, and if it happens, you know, to too big of an extent, that hospital has been required to start transferring those patients to other facilities. Mm And you you can't just leave somebody there without an appropriate level of care. So yeah,
0: it's, it's pretty difficult. And and that's not a cheap endeavor on its own.
1: Oh no, not a cheap endeavor in that, you you know, and those patients aren't going to come back, you know? And so, um, there's an old saying that, you know, every hospital administrator knows that in reality, what a hospital is, it's a very expensive hotel with bad food. It only becomes profitable if you have doctors. Right. You know, to care for there.
0: There's a lot of the. There's a lot of union groups across the country. There's an acronym for a union in this article that I'm desperately trying to find the what the full name is for it, and I'm not finding it. Uh, it it's CIR, which represents about twenty thousand members. It's about one in seven physician trainees uh, in 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 the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, the last CIR strike. Was in 1975 by residents at 11 hospitals in New York. That's significant. Um, I don't know if we're I don't know if we're heading that far right now, but um, 11 hospitals in New York in the 70s would have been would have been a big difference. I would imagine.
1: Oh yeah, make a huge difference. Um, you know, and in a lot of markets in a lot of cities. Um, hospitals operate at a, um, at a pretty tight capacity. You know, we, we have, until until COVID came, it's a pretty predictable number of patients that are going to come in and every day, you know, and so hospitals talk about their census, how many, what percentage of their bill beds are filled. A lot of hospitals run at 83, 85, 90% census. Well, that's really almost full because, you know, you can't just, you know, turn a bed over in an hour Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a while to get discharged Everything, So imagine, if you will, a couple of hospitals get shut down because their residents aren't there. There might not be enough space in the rest of the hospitals to take those patients. Right. And then you're in a real problem because now you're you're shipping patients off for long distances to get them into another hospital.
0: Uh, especially as the CDC is saying that uh, COVID cases are, are continuing to rise uh, and hospitalizations are up 20% over the last yeah. two weeks. Yeah, exactly. Um, for COVID. And I know in... I'm just going to throw this out there only because it's in the news with, with monkeypox going around, not that it's going to be COVID, so please don't say that we're saying that because it's not. That's a, that's another thing that may get people a little bit more vigilant with their own health, a little bit more likely to go see their doctor about certain things, and it may end up in some sort of hospitalization if they find something that, uh, that got diagnosed quickly.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Do you think that this is a, a referendum in some ways on uh, public hospital systems or university hospital systems uh, as opposed to private or nonprofit hospitals?
1: No, I, I actually think this is a there's a bigger um, there's a bigger issue here. And I think a lot of these things, you know, the PE money entry, the you know the residents looking at saying we're overworked and underpaid, you know, all of these factors that we're seeing are sort of um, symptoms to what I think is a bigger issue, which is we have a healthcare system um, delivery and financing system that is being pushed and stretched um, and is, you know, close to a breaking point. Um, you know, I sort of view this as a lot of these things as sort of the, you know, the pre-shocks to a big earthquake, mm-hmm. um, you know, in and of themselves, they're not that bad but you got to pay attention to what they're, you know, what they're predicting. Um, And and like I said, I think these are, this isn't related to whether it's a private hospital or a public hospital or a teaching system or whatever. The fundamental things are we've got healthcare professionals and healthcare financing systems that are being stretched and they'll only stretch so far. Um, And if it breaks, it's going to break pretty catastrophically.
0: And closing out with this topic as well, kind of like what we did with the other one, I want to ask you, with regards to unionized residents and unionized nurses and physician groups, how does this affect quality, access, and cost in the American healthcare system? In and
1: of itself, unionization of a labor force um, won't automatically have a positive or negative effect on any of those things. It's Mm -hmm. sort of how it gets done. Um, you know, there have been um, unionization of other labor forces that have had a positive effect on the product they produced. And there have been unionization of labor forces that have had a negative effect on the product they produced. Um, it's really more of how the, how the tool gets implemented, if you will. Um, to me, though, anytime you talk about the unionization of a labor force, you've got to ask the fundamental question, why? Why would a labor force want to organize like that, take money out of their pocket for union dues there. There's an underlying reason of what makes them want to do that. And there's a reason why the businesses or industries that tend to have pretty high, um, employee satisfaction have no discussion of union. Um, Mm -hmm. it's the same thing with the, you know, why would a doctor want to sell the PE money because they're feeling not great about where they are. Right. So to me, You know, it's the best question is to say, well, if the residents want to be unionized, let's ask why. What's driving them to that? You know, um, if, you know, people are wanting to do a certain thing, what's why. In and of itself, it won't won't automatically have a positive or negative impact on those other things.
0: Well, Ron, I think that's going to about do it for our program today. Uh, Thanks, as always, for joining us. Oh,
1: you're very welcome. Thank you.
0: And don't forget, you can follow Ron on Twitter. He's at Ron Howergan. You can also follow me. I'm at Radio Handley. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to this program on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Radio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.